1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Join me uh, briefly as we pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that the word that your spirit has inspired would come alive to us as he reveals to us the things of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Has anyone ever told you that Christianity is a crutch for people who can't cope? Maybe somebody at work is surprised to think that of all the people in the office, you appear relatively switched on and intellectual and like you know what's going on in the world, and then they hear that you're a Christian, and you see there's a sense of disappointment in their eyes. You think, oh, you're not intelligent after all. Maybe you've had somebody tell you that Christians aren't intellectual or that Christianity is less about knowledge, it's more about emotions and feeling. And if you were here last week, you could misread the beginning of 1 Corinthians that way. Andy helped us to see that all the way through this story that we are being encouraged to treasure is weakness. We have a weak message that is communicated by a weak speaker to weak hearers. And all of that was the exact opposite of everything that the church, well, sorry, everything that the culture in Corinth valued. They loved eloquence and education. They loved knowledge and power and wisdom. Everything was supposed to be great. Not that there isn't power in the gospel. If you just look back to uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, And verse 5 of chapter 2, they're the bookends of the passage that we saw last week. The power of God bookends the whole of the passage that we looked at. It's the 
We're being saved by the power of God, verse 18, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. But that power is demonstrated in the gospel through weakness. A weak message communicated by a weak speaker to weak hearers. All of which, no doubt, left the Corinthians and perhaps leave you this evening thinking that Christians despise wisdom and knowledge. God's outsmarted wisdom. He's judged wisdom. He's called, as we saw last week, only a few who were considered to be wise to be part of the body of the church in Corinth. Doesn't that mean that Christians are simplistic anti-intellectuals? Maybe you think people view you as somebody who walk in that door on a Sunday evening, check your brain at the door, come in, do something for an hour, and then leave, picking your brain up on the way out. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what Paul is engaging with in this passage tonight. Yes, Christians are encouraged, called, commanded to turn away from worldly wisdom and power, but we don't turn towards ignorance and impotence. We turn to divine wisdom and divine power. And we see in the second half of chapter 2, Paul is going to show us what that wisdom is, how we receive it, and how it changes us. And if you see that big picture, I think, I hope, that will help you understand how this whole section connects to the problem that is going on in Corinth. We saw a few weeks ago that when Paul begins this letter, he refers to them, verses 4 to 9 especially, of chapter 1. He refers to them as professing Christians. But having made a good profession, many of them have now abandoned God's wisdom. So they said they were Christians, and they've come to understand certain things, but as they've gone on in their Christian life, they've abandoned God's wisdom, and they've turned towards human wisdom. And what happens when Christians do that? Sin creeps in everywhere. Creeps in in immorality. You start building your life on human wisdom instead of divine wisdom, and division starts to just seep into all the relationships around a church. Greed creeps in, selfishness, arrogance creep in. All of the things that we're seeing are problems in the church of Corinth. Paul knows have to be plucked out by the roots. I was weeding my drive yesterday afternoon, continually frustrated with how you never get the bottom of the weed. And the roots are still there, which means in two weeks' time, I'll be doing exactly the same thing all over again. And Paul's saying, if you want to replace all of these problems you're wrestling with in this church in Corinth, we're going to deal with the specifics. We're going to talk about immorality and division and all of the other things that are going on. But if you want to unpick the root, you need to turn away from human wisdom and rebuild your life on godly wisdom. That's the big picture. And Paul explains it in three ways. Firstly, in verses 6 to 10, we see that there is wisdom for the mature. Do not think there is no wisdom for a Christian. That you switch your brain off, you just do the touchy-feely thing, and you hope for heaven. That is not the message of the gospel. There is wisdom for the mature. Verse 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. question is... What's the word of wisdom? 
and who are the mature. And for some people, this is one of those moments that gets their kind of Dan Brown conspiracy theory worlds whirring, thinking, well, maybe there's a secret somewhere. Maybe there's a 67th book in the Bible that we haven't found yet. Maybe there is chapter 6 to James's epistle. Maybe there's something that I haven't got yet, because that's the message of wisdom for the mature. Does that mean I'm missing out if I'm just a regular Christian who believes this to be the inerrant, inspired word of God? Well, the answer, of course, is no. But I want you to see why. And in order to see why, in order to understand that, you have to understand what the message of wisdom is in order to then understand who the mature are. And the message of wisdom, verse 7, is the gospel. It's God's mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. If all that sounds a little bit unusual to you because the Bible is perhaps a new book to you, in the way that the Bible uses the word mystery and hidden, it is a description of what has been hidden and is now revealed. Not that it's still hidden, unless you've yet to come to faith, but it has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was trailered and previewed all the way through the Old Testament, but, but the beauty and the completeness of what is the wisdom of God was hidden until Jesus Christ came into the world. In his humiliation and his incarnation, we see the love of God, willing to set aside the eternal glory of God to come into our world. In his resurrection, as James prayed, we were reminded of him taking the penalty for our sin. In his resurrection, we know that it is fully sufficient to deal with our sin. And in his ascension, we are now seeing the glory that will be ours. Because he is the first fruits, of that, first fruits of that new creation. The message of wisdom is the gospel. It's not a higher level of teaching. It's not a secret bit of knowledge that's hidden away somewhere. If you happen to be super spiritual, it's the gospel. And if you look in verses 9, 10, you see the wonder of God's wisdom unpacked for us. It is greater than anything we could understand or imagine ourselves. That's what Paul explains in verse 9. God's wisdom is better than anything you could see or hear or imagine. <laughs> Which is everything, right? There's, like, there's nothing left now. <laughs> Why? How is that possible? Well, it's because through the wisdom of the gospel, our future is secure in Jesus. Whatever is filling your weak right now, and all of the uncertainty that all of us are facing, the pain and the suffering that perhaps nobody else knows, all of the struggle and all of the doubts, all of that, real as it is, is not what ultimately defines you. Our great future, which is beyond everything that you could ever see, imagine, or think, is secure because Jesus has won it for you. God's plans for his people are so wonderful, we can't even begin to imagine what they will be like. But not only that, this message of wisdom, the end of verse 9, it saves us. It takes people who are born enemies of God and deserve his judgment, and he makes them people who love him. The things God has prepared for those who love him and have been saved for, and are being prepared for that great future that he has prepared for us. 
And this message of wisdom, beyond everything we could imagine, that saves us, verse 10, is revealed to us by God himself. Corinthians couldn't go to Galileo's graduate rhetoric school to earn or pay for this wisdom. It's revealed. It's a gift given by God himself, which means this message of wisdom is all about the good news of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means, back to verse 6, who are the mature. They are not the super spiritual elite who have got hold of something else that everybody else hasn't quite mastered yet. You think about what Paul's trying to do in these opening chapters of Corinth. He's looking at this church that is divided over everything. You pick an issue, they can disagree about it. It doesn't matter whether they're thinking about their leaders or the way that they should deal with immorality in the church or how they should do things when they get together as a church family. You name it, they'll argue about it. Paul, in these opening chapters, is trying to draw this church family back together to see the unity that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not now going to shoot himself in the foot and say, ah, but none of this really makes sense to you normal Christians. You have to be the super special. It's like complete madness to the whole of his thinking. He is speaking to all Christians and helping them see that he's not distinguishing super Christians with special truth from ordinary Christians with ordinary truth. He's distinguishing ordinary Christians who've continued to live by God's wisdom and through it become mature. From professing ordinary Christians who've abandoned God's wisdom, turned to human wisdom, and are now living lives of immaturity and immorality. That's the distinction. Which means when we read about the mature, he's speaking, he's commending the gospel to all of us. Not hoping that some of us might find some secret bit somewhere. And to everybody who's wandered from that, Paul pleads with them to come back, knowing that this old, old message of the foolishness of the cross is the wisdom of God. And that, coming back, that can be hard. For all sorts of reasons. But one reason is that as you look around you, it seems like the wisdom of the world is winning. It's what it would have felt like for the Corinthians. It might be what you feel like it is today. The wisdom of the world is what is winning. Injustice and inequality surrounded the Corinthians just like they do us today. And it's tempting to follow that human wisdom because it seems to work. In Paul's day, you think about the, the leaders that would have still been on the kind of news headlines. Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas. They're the wise guys. They're the powerful guys. In fact, they're so powerful, they can even get rid of somebody they don't approve of, like Jesus. But look what Paul reminds us in verse 6. The wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age are coming to nothing. Don't follow wisdom with a shelf life. It's coming to nothing. And what did they do in all their quotes, wisdom, verse 8? In their ignorance, they crucified the Lord of glory. Not the Lord of this age, but the Lord of glory. 
And if they continue in their sin to reject the wisdom of God, end of verse 6, they will come to nothing. And by that, Paul doesn't mean they'll get to the end of their lives and, and all of the power and all the wealth will just fall through their dead fingers and they'll be gone. He means at the end of their life, they will be face to face with the Lord of glory they've rejected and have to confront the eternal God they've crucified. That is how dangerous it is to turn from the wisdom of God towards human wisdom. Now, some of us, myself included, need to be challenged by this reminder that it is too easy for any of us, even in our Christian lives, to stop relying on God's wisdom and to turn to human wisdom. That temptation never ends. You don't get to a point in your Christian life where you're so mature you'll never be tempted by doing things a different way because it's going to be easier, quicker, faster, whatever. It's a temptation we all struggle with and we need to constantly check ourselves and remember that it is the wisdom of God that we need to be building our lives upon. But that leads us to an important question. How can we get God's wisdom? If it's so important that we have it, how can we get it? Or if we, by God's grace, if we know it, how can we grow in it? And verses 10 to 13 show us, secondly, that we receive wisdom from the Spirit of God. Knowing what somebody is really thinking is really hard. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen one of those performers who work a crowd in a, you know, call it whatever you will, they, they'd often call it a magic show or whatever, but they work a crowd and, and what they try and do is show to you that they can pick somebody at random and tell you the number that they're thinking of in their head. I remember the first time I saw somebody do that, I was speechless. I thought it was absolutely astonishing. Um, until you watch a few more and you Google how they do it and you realize that it's not mind reading at all. They've very cleverly done all sorts of prompts and ways of controlling and suggesting and all that kind of stuff to make sure that the person they pick who they've had walk through all these different rooms to think about certain numbers is going to be thinking about the very number that they've planned for them to be. It's not mind reading at all. Now, I don't know whether anybody was running the same number-guessing scam in Corinth in Paul's day, but Paul knows nobody knows what you're thinking but you. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? And then you're left thinking, well, the wisdom of God is what I'm trying to understand, but if I know human to human, that I can't even know a number you're thinking about unless I've prompted and controlled your environment to make sure that you're thinking about the one I want you to be thinking about. How am I, if I can't know what a person is thinking about, going to know what the eternal God is thinking about? <laughs> His mind is uncreated and unending. His ability is limitless. His power knows no bounds. If it were left to us, we could never know the mind of God. But God has bridged the gap. That's what Paul explains in verses 10 to 12. The Spirit of God searches all things, even the deep things of God. Verse 11. 
In the same way as only a person knows their own thoughts, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So now you're thinking, here's the problem. I want to know the wisdom and the thoughts of God, and I can't possibly. But the Spirit of God does. And then in this amazing gift of grace in verse 12, we have received the Spirit who is from God. God has given us him very self in order that we may truly know him. Now we rightly spend most of our time thinking about everything we've received through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is absolutely right that we do that and continue to do that. But let us not also forget what we have received through the Holy Spirit. I guess uh, for those of you who know the book of 1 Corinthians, if I were to say to you, whereabouts is it in the book that we start talking about the Spirit? Most of us would think about chapters 12 and 14. And rightly so, as we were thinking this morning. They are full of the reminders of the gifts of the Spirit and all of the things that he gives to his people. But if my math is right, and you can correct me if I've got this wrong later on, I'm pretty sure that in chapter 2 and verses 10 to 16... The Spirit is mentioned more times than he is in the whole of chapter 12 and twice as many times as he is in chapter 14. Now, I don't want to just play a numbers game because obviously that's not how you understand God's word. But at least in the frequency, do you see what Paul is stressing in this book? It is that without underestimating the importance of the gifts that the Spirit gives, the most important thing the Spirit does is he reveals God to us. He points that spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. His great emphasis, verse 12, he is given so that, here's the purpose clause, this is why the Spirit is given, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. What has he given us? Most amazingly, most wonderfully, most succinctly of all, he has given us forgiveness and eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. At which point you think, well, I know that. What next? Well, if that's the way you respond to the what you know, I don't think you know what you know yet. Because what Paul is doing is he is showing us how all-sufficient that knowledge is. Think about what little we know about what's going on in the church in Corinth so far in this letter. Paul has shown us that forgiveness in Christ is given to everyone in equal measure. You go from being dead in your sins to clothed in life and righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. That happens whatever your background, whatever your bank account, whatever your academic CV. Forgiveness in Christ is given to everyone who repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means any man-made division or separation or factions are just sin and anti-gospel. There are, of course, different things in which the Lord has provided ways in which we can understand things. But any man-made division in which we separate the people of God is just sinful. And then you think about what is true with their cult-like following of some of their leaders. That is just human wisdom leading to sin. That's just adopting the world's way of thinking 
and ignoring the truth of the gospel, which is that we have been saved into and we are following the one great shepherd who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every under-shepherd is pointing to him. Then you think about their lack of humility and love. It's a massive problem all the way through the book. When the Holy Spirit helps us to understand what God has freely given us in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is he showing us? He's showing us the self-sacrificing humility of the second person of the Godhead. Many of us will be familiar with what Paul writes in Philippians as he thinks about how we're to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. And that cropped up in my devotions this week. Uh, Alistair Begg read from those uh, first couple of verses in chapter 2. Complete my joy, he says to the Christians in Philippi, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And Begg in his devotion apply that lovely text like this. If we're to be united in Christ, we cannot insist on our own way. Instead, we need to count others more significant than ourselves. This means that we remind ourselves of the best in others before thinking of ourselves. That we are quicker to ask what would be best for others than what would be most convenient for ourselves. That we would be willing to enter into the lives and struggles of others rather than standing aloof. All of that flows from more fully understanding what God has freely given us. And you think how much that would have transformed the church in Corinth if they had more fully understood what they have been given. But it only changes people as they are as they hear it, as it's shared with them. Verse 12, Paul tells us what is received, but it's received, verse 13, to be shared. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Now, if we had a lot longer think it would be helpful to understand that right here, Paul is primarily speaking of how the Spirit supernaturally inspired the apostles to understand his word and particularly record it so that you and I, with the Bibles on our laps, know that what they were given is the literal word of God. I think that's the emphasis that Paul's making here. But secondarily to that, as we were reminded last week when we were thinking about the mission of the church. It is for all of God's people to take his word and share it with all people. That they would hear the wisdom of God and be able to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ themselves. And it's our duty, it's our privilege, with the help of the Spirit, to take spiritual truth and apply it to real life. But as we do that, We need to remember the final thing that Paul shows us. Point number three, God's wisdom makes all the difference between spiritual and unspiritual people. Verse 14, Paul explains that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness 
and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Perhaps you're here this evening and that's the first thing we've read that makes sense to you. I just don't get it. I'm regularly reminded of that in our baptism services. You know, what a wonderful privilege and encouragement it is, time and time again, that in God's grace, you have, especially our young people, who've been in the church for years, and they've finally come to faith, and they stand there by the waters of baptism. And what is the most consistent theme that you hear in one of their testimonies? I finally heard the gospel. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, been preaching for five and a half years, and they've only just heard the gospel. That's not what they mean. Of course it's not what they mean. It means it is only when the Spirit of God opens their eyes to see that they're able to see and respond to the gospel. It's not that they haven't literally heard it auditorily through their ears. It's that they haven't had spiritual ears to hear the truth that they have been hearing. And the same is true in your workplace, your university, your school. You know when you're speaking to your non-Christian friends, it's not just that They won't accept it. It's stronger than that. The the reaction, the rejection is stronger. It's, I think you're a fool. I think what you hold most dear is folly. I, I literally can't accept it. And what we're reminded when you get into verse 14 is how absolutely essential prayer is in our evangelism. Now, I want us to be really clear, this isn't an either or, okay? So yes, we absolutely as Christians all need to become more familiar with our Bibles. And yes, all of us should seek to be able to explain it more clearly so that our evangelism isn't one of the boundaries that people get stuck on, that we can more clearly explain the perfect world that God has made, the fall in which we're now living in, what Jesus has come to do and has finished at the cross and our great hope that he will renew all things. It's right that we do all those things. Because why? God is a God who uses means. Show me in the text. Verse 16, verse 13, sorry. Paul speaks of what he's received. God uses those means for people to be saved. But what are we reminded of when it comes to that ultimate challenge in verse 14? The person without the Spirit doesn't accept and can't understand the things that are discerned only through the Spirit. So what is... I don't want to make priorities if that's an unhelpful thing, but at least a supremely important thing in our evangelism. It is our prayer. Our prayer that God would send his spirit to open blind eyes, deaf ears, and a dead heart so that they can hear, see, and live. Now we can apply that in all sorts of ways. I hope you're already doing that in your mind. Um, personally, corporately, here's one to take away with you. I'd love you this week to look at the church calendar, the church bulletin. I'd love you to remember two things. Number one, no one person can be at every ministry in our church throughout the course of a week. It's just too many of them. That's fine. Number two, every single one of us can pray for every single one of them. Every single one of them. And I would lovingly challenge myself and you to pray verse 14 when you're thinking about all of them. 
You think about all of the people who will come into the orbit of the church through the youth ministries, the senior ministries, through the men's and women's ministries, through all the things that we're trying to do and plead with God to send the Spirit of God to open eyes, ears, and hearts. Because until he does that, none will be able to respond. That's what we need to pray for. Verse 14, that God would send the Spirit of God into all that we do. That's how important the Spirit of God is for the unspiritual. But as we close, look at how essential the Spirit is for believers. Verse 15, Paul tells us the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. Now, he is not saying when you become a Christian, you get super judgmental about everything. Nor is he saying... When you become a Christian, you never make any wrong decisions. We're still wrestling with our sinful natures. We're still living in a fallen world. But it does mean that the Spirit enables Christians to make decisions in all of life that have the cross at the center and eternity in perspective. And none of our unbelieving friends can do either of those things. They cannot make decisions with the cross at the center. And they cannot make decisions with eternity in perspective. What does that look like? Well, maybe some of you are going to face an option for a promotion. It's hypotheticals. I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. And... The whole world, human wisdom, is going to say, it's bigger, it's better, it pays more, go for it. And it might be the right decision for all sorts of good and godly opportunities that it will afford you. But it might also be that you say no because it would ask of you more than you can do to also fulfill your responsibilities at home, with the family, or in the church. The world won't get it. And that's okay. Maybe you're getting to that stage where the whole boyfriend-girlfriend thing is starting to become a thing. And you've realized that for the vast majority of all of your friends, as soon as it gets serious, you move in. That's the wisdom of the world. They could give you a thousand reasons for why it's a good call. The Bible tells you it's not only sinful, but it is spectacularly unwise. Time and again, you will see this confrontation. The, the worldly wisdom is going to snub you, sneer at you, and jeer at you. But that's okay. Because the wisdom of God puts the cross at the center and eternity in perspective. Now, I wrestled, if I'm honest with you, with how to understand this quote in verse 16. And I didn't know for a good number of hours how verse 16 linked to verse 15 until I read Charles Hodge, for whom I'm very thankful. And he states it in three simple statements like this. You've got this idea about the wisdom of God that helps those who have the Spirit make judgments about all things. And then we have for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Here's Chuck Hodges' three statements that massively help me. Number one, no one can instruct the Lord. 
Number two, we have the mind of the Lord. So number three, as we put that mind of Christ into action, no one can instruct or judge us. They have to hear all of that in its context. Okay, We're not saying that if you're at school or university or in the workplace, you can't learn anything from unbelievers. That's not what we're saying. Of course you can. What we're saying is in the context of what matters for all eternity, when you are thinking about putting the cross in the center and eternity in perspective, our unbelieving friends simply don't have a frame of reference. They haven't got the vocabulary. They haven't got a spiritual reality to live in to help you work through those questions. But by God's grace, you do because we have the mind of Christ. And what a staggering privilege it is when you put all of what we've been looking at this evening together. So by faith in Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit. How often have we taken that statement for granted? The third person of the eternal Godhead lives in you if you're a believer this evening. And what does he do? He helps you know the mind of God. How massive is that? And what particularly does he help you do? He helps you understand what God has freely given to you. Which is life, forgiveness, and an eternal relationship with him through the sacrificial death of his son. Now, you tell me, are Christians people who just need a crutch and lack wisdom? Do you see the hope that we have in what Paul is showing us here? What it means for us to be Christians is to treasure and love the greatest wisdom in the world. And as we do that, by the grace of God, it will change and encourage and sustain us in all of life as we seek to live it for his glory.